You guys want to come find a seat? Five more? Five more? What's your name? I, if I can't read it, I don't... Yama? Yeah, we're seeking out people we don't know to be friendly. Yeah, so next week, just a big quiz on everyone's name. Come on in, take a seat. Oh, that's what your name is? You don't want to know people's names? All right. Welcome back. Week three of Fundamentals of the Faith. Today we're talking about God and his attributes, his character. Um, But before I do that, I need to make a correction for last week. Big mistake. I told you guys to look up an app. And I was saying it's called living word. It's actually called literal word. Literal word. So that's probably why you couldn't find it. (laughs) Um, Literal word. It's free. Uh, You can just click a a word. You can click the literal word and it will give you the literal definition in the Greek or the Hebrew. Um, So it's super helpful. Helps you see where else it's used in the Bible. Um, Literal word. Other note is that all these notes... And you can listen to these. They're on the website. Um, So I uploaded the PDFs for the first two weeks. If you're like, oh, that was really great. That'd be helpful to this person. You can just send them to the website, uh, Fundamentals of the Faith. And there'll be the two lessons and then the two notes. Um, So yeah, just a couple things. Um, Let me pray. And then I'm going to read this section of the London Baptist Confession about God. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you that your mercies are new every day. Um, Lord, we definitely need them. Um, Just thank you for the opportunity to gather together with the saints so that we can learn about you and worship you for all you've done for us. Lord, I pray that as we um, look at your attributes and your character, I pray that we would be in awe and it would cause us to worship you and it would help fuel our worship later in service and throughout this week. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Yeah, come on in, take a seat, grab some notes. Um, So chapter 2.1 of the Second London Baptist Confession about God, it says, the Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. Self-existent, meaning he doesn't need anything. He doesn't rely on anything like us. We don't, he doesn't need air. He doesn't need anything in creation to exist. He's self-existent. 
His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. I could just keep going. But uh, just a cool thing about God is we can know God truly because he's revealed himself in his word. We can truly know him, but we can't exhaustively know him. We can't know everything about him. There's way too much. Um, He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. This is the God that we serve. Um, so today, we're talking about him. Um, in the religions of today's, of today's world, there are many so-called gods and just as many opinions about what God or God is like. The Bible, on the other hand, claims to be the revelation of the one true God. The Bible never tries to prove that God exists. Have you noticed that in the, in the Bible? It doesn't try to prove that he's real or that he exists. It simply states, in the beginning, God. Right at the beginning, Genesis 1.1, it asserts that he's real and it asserts that he created everything. In the beginning, God. So today we're going to have a lot of interaction, hopefully. Um, so Psalm 89, verses 7 and 8, how does it describe God? How does it describe God? Does someone want to look that up and read it? I'll read the second one. I'll do B. Someone want to look up Psalm 89, 7 and 8? Sweet. Amy with your name tag. So how does this, uh, how does God reveal himself in this, um, in these verses? He's to be feared, he is awesome, and he is mighty. Um, B, what statement is made to point to the fact that there is only one God? Isaiah 43.10 says, before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. No God before God, and none after him. He's the only God. Um, C, what is it that God will not give to another? What will God not, his glory, yep, or his praise? So God won't give his glory or praise to any other, um, any other God, any other person, any other thing. And it's funny just pairing up with the, just the other verses, like there's no other God that exists. Um, Steve Lawson one time he, he said, our God isn't only true, he's also the only God. We humans, we, like Romans 1 says, we, we make up idols, we, we worship the creation rather than the creator. So we're always 
making up idols, things to worship in rebellion to God. Uh, John Calvin said, we are idol-making factories. So we're just constantly looking to other things to worship or to treasure instead of God. So God is to be feared. He's awesome. He's mighty. There's no other God um, before him, after him, and he will not give his glory to another or his praise. So the importance of knowing God. Just first off, before we go into these questions, why is it important to know God? This is what theology is, the study of God. Some people, some churches say, oh, well, we don't need, we don't need theology. We don't need theology. I, we can just, we just love Jesus. We're about Jesus. Um, no creed but Christ, people say. Why is it important to study about God or to know him? Totally. Anyone else? Why is it important to learn about God or know God? Oh, sorry. Hi. Right. Uh, I think Tozer said the most important thing about you is, is what comes to your mind when you think about God. Um, so how are you going to worship God? Say you're a church that says no creed but Christ. How are you going to know who Christ is if you don't study theology? How are you going to worship God? Like the songs that we sing, they're full of theology. They're full of the gospel. What God is like, he's holy, holy, holy. He, uh, he's saved us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Um, how are you going to sing those things and quote unquote feel those things if you don't know what they mean? How are you going to call God holy, holy, holy? You don't even know what that means. Um, so just... Theology should lead to doxology. Learning about God should lead you to worship. Um, so it's important to know God so you can know what he's like, what he's done, who we are in light of it, what creation is in light of that. Um, so yeah. Uh, A, John 17.3, Jesus equated knowing God with what? Eternal life. Knowing God is equated to eternal life. Um, rather than boasting in wisdom, might, or riches, what one thing does God say a man should boast about? Jeremiah 9.24. Does someone want to look that up really quick? Huh? What did you say? Good guess. Yes. That he understands and knows me, God. So on your own, yeah, what can you boast in, Paxton? No, 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 on your own. Outside of that, nothing, right, good, good. Um, this closer, to closer, tozer quote, oh my goodness. A right conception of God is basic, not only in systematic theology, but, in pra but to practical Christian living as well. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Man, just studying God is so important, and it's so beneficial for uh, the believer. 
as you'll see as we go over some of these attributes in a second, a lot of our problems, a lot of our comfort can come from knowing theology, knowing about God. Um, and we'll go over some of those things in a second. Um, but before we do that, how can we know God? How can one know God? What does Jesus say about the means for knowing God in John 14? John 14, <clears throat> 9 and 10. I can read it really quick. Um, Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So what does Jesus say about the means for knowing God? How do we know God? Christ, yeah. We know God by seeing Christ. Um, so Philip was asking, asking Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I not been with you so long and you still do not, still do not know me, Philip? If you know me, you know the Father. Um, what does Paul say about Christ in Colossians 2.9? Colossians 2.9. I'll, I'll read that for you really quick. Colossians 2.9. In my literal word app, not living word app. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole deity dwells in who? Christ, Jesus. So other religions who say Jesus wasn't God, this goes right, in, right against that. Jesus was God, full, fully. Fullness of deity dwells in him. Um, and then see, the writer of Hebrews says that God has spoken to us in his son. How is Jesus described in Hebrews 1.3? Can someone look that one up? Hebrews 1.3. That's awesome, right, about Jesus? He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus, all deity dwells in him um, in bodily form. Remember, we just talked about God as spirit. So if you, when you see Jesus, you see God, though. Um, okay, so what are the attributes, God's attributes? An attribute is a quality or characteristic that is true about someone. Studying God's attributes allows us to have a limited understanding of his person. Even though some concepts exceed the limits of our comprehension, our ideas concerning God need to be as true as possible. So this goes back to that fact that we can know true things about God. and Well, we want those things that we know about God to be true. But we can't know everything about God. Only what he's revealed in his word. Um, so there's a little diagram here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, some attributes. These are not all of God's attributes. These are just the ones that are in the book. Um, you can get, uh, MacArthur has a, 
a big white book called Biblical Doctrine, and it has big sections on more attributes. But these are the ones we'll be covering today. These are like the main ones. Um, so, God's attributes defined. First, oh, it says, look up the scripture verses, write down uh, the part of the verse that best describes the given attribute. Um, so we're going to be talking about each attribute briefly, um, and then talk about it. Talk about how it applies to us, how it could encourage us, um, or cause us to worship. So one is holiness. Holy, holy, holy is God. God's attribute of holy means that he is untouched and unstained by the evil in the world. He is absolutely pure and perfect. Um, I have this quote here from Thomas Watson. It's not in your notes. It says, he is holy in his nature. He can no more do an unrighteous action than the sun can darken. Holiness in God is unchangeable. He never lost a drop of his holiness as he cannot have more holiness. God can't be more holy. He's perfectly holy. Um, because he is perfectly holy, yeah. So he cannot have less holiness because he is unchangeably holy. Holy means to be set apart. He's totally different from us. Um, the angels sing holy, holy, holy day and night. Um, it means that he is absolutely pure and perfect. Um, so Exodus 15.11, it says, I'll just, I'll just go through these because we won't have enough time. It says, who is like you? Talking about God. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Just these are scriptures that show that God is holy. Psalm 99, verse 9, worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Because God is holy, we are exhorted to be holy. We are to be set apart from sin unto God. Our lives are to shine as a reflection of God in an unchanging world. So how, how does this attribute, how does, what's pers any personal application from this um, attribute of God? Um, God tells Israel, be holy for I am holy. As Christians, we've been saved, and we've been saved by this holy God, um, so we should strive to be holy, although positionally, we are already seen as righteous. Um, out of thankfulness for what God has done, we should strive to be holy like him. We want to be like God. Um, so any personal application? Yeah, we should live for God instead of ourselves. Anyone else? I heard, thought I heard a whisper. Yeah? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So God is holy. Um, if you guys think of anything, you can always come back to it. Number two, righteousness and justice. Um, they're derived from the same root word in the original language of the New Testament. The meaning is being right or just. Righteousness designates the perfect agreement between God's nature and his acts. Justice is the way God legislates his righteousness. There's no action that God takes in relation to man 
that violates any code of morality or justice. So God is perfectly righteous and he is perfectly just. He doesn't do anything wrong. He's not only holy, he doesn't do anything wrong. Any thoughts about that? Righteousness? Um, According to Psalm 119, 137, God's righteousness is displayed in his judgments. We see in the Bible as he um, just works out in human history that everything he does is right. All his judgments are right. Um, And so this is actually, these attributes are kind of scary for us. Um, I think Paul Washer, when sharing the gospel, he said, what's the, the scariest thing about God is that he's good, that he is holy. Because what is a holy God to do with people like us? What is a holy, righteous, just God to do with sinners? Because we've all sinned. What's he to do with us? He's perfectly just. He can't just let us go. He's perfectly righteous. He's not going to do wrong. So it's, it's a scary thing. Wonder what he did about that. Um, in Psalm eighty nine fourteen, righteousness and justice are referred to as the foundation of his throne. The foundation of his throne. Um, false teachers have long sought to discard God's justice while affirming his goodness. Some people want to say, well, he's just so good. He, has, he can't let people go to hell. He would never send people to hell. He's too good. He's too loving. Well, love isn't God's only attribute. Mercy isn't his only attribute. He is still righteous and just. A good judge wouldn't let criminals go freely. As much as we would wish that he would do that. However, we cannot separate justice from goodness without destroying both. If he were to let people go, he wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be good if he let people go. Irenaeus wisely said that justice without goodness is not just, and goodness without justice is not good. So the true God must be both good and just. As Augustine said, God's grace cannot be unjust, and his justice cannot be cruel. So let me ask you, how does your standard of what is right and just compare with God's standard? How do, how do, how do humans... How is, what's their standard of right compared to God's? Anyone? Huh? It's chaos, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, his standard's perfect. Ours is flawed. How does, how, what does that look like? It looks like judging others har- harsher. More hard. Um, anyone else? That is, yeah, that's a good point. Um, we like when we watch the news, we see people on TV, people that Mark catches, he detects. Um, those are the bad people. Those are the bad people. Those people who break the law, not us. We're just at home. We're eating dinner. We're fine, right? That's how people think. But no, Romans 3, there's none righteous. No, not one. We are all lawbreakers. We all break God's law. Humans' standard is so uh, 
relative, like compared to other people. But we're not going to be judged compared to other people. We're not going to be judged compared to, oh, well, we're not going to get to God's throne. and He's not going to say, oh, well, you weren't Hitler, so you're good. You weren't Roman, so you're good. That's not how it works. The standard is God. The standard is God's righteousness. The standard um, that we're going to be judged by is God. We're to be holy. We were made in his image. And we were to reflect his glory. And we messed that up big time. Um, so God is holy. He's righteous. He's just. And that's a problem for us. Number three, he is sovereign. The word sovereign means chief or highest, supreme in power or superior in position to all others. So does someone want to say what sovereign means? Just like your own definition. We hear about this one a lot, especially when Pastor Mike teaches. This is, this is Pastor Mike's favorite attribute of God, sovereignty. Does anyone know what it means? He's ruler of everything. He's in charge of everything. Every molecule, every car that goes by, every, everything. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over um, whether a nation rises up into power or falls. Everything. There's nothing you can name that God is not in charge of. Um, so, um, I'll let you guys look up those two verses that I listed twice. Um, the idea of sovereignty is encouraging, for it assures the Christian that nothing is out of God's control and that his plans cannot be thwarted. Uh, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God. Why is sovereignty encouraging to us? Why is it, why can it, how can it be comforting to us? You're not in charge of your own life. You can't. <laughs> right. So when trials come, oh, were you going to say something? No, you can go. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, he's in charge of everything. When trials come into our lives... When good things come into our lives, they all pass through his sovereign hand. There's nothing in your life that happens that God didn't, quote unquote, okay 
Um, anyone else? How does God's sovereignty affect our prayers? If God wasn't sovereign, if he wasn't in control of everything, would you be praying? I don't know. What would be the point? So how does sovereignty encourage our prayers? That's good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. It, it's, uh, it's comforting for trials that he's sovereign, and it's like, it empowers our prayers. You're praying to the one who's in charge of everything. You're praying to the one who can... Um, do something about it. Um, number four, eternality. Uh, the Bible teaches us that God is limitless or infinite with respect to time. Job 36, 26 says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. Neither can the number, can the number of his years be searched out. Whereas every creature has an age that can be counted in years. Uh, God's duration cannot be expressed in a number. He is ageless. God's infinity with respect to time is called his eternity. Time and the passing of time are aspects of creation appointed by God. Think about this. Time is a creation. Time didn't exist before Genesis 1.1. So God is not in time. He's not subject to creation. He created it. By his nature surpasses all time and is unaffected by time. Um, so yeah, since God is eternal, there has never been a time where he did not exist. God has no beginning and no end. How about that? Does that blow your mind? Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Um, Isaiah 44. 43.13, even from eternity, I am he. Before time began, God was. He wasn't created, self-existent. He's independent of anything. He doesn't need anything. Another quote from Tozer is that even the word need is a creature word. It's a word for us. We need things. We need air. We need water. Um, God doesn't need anything. And from before time, he was. Being eternal, God is not bound by time. Always existed. He sees the past and the future as clearly as he sees the present. Try and wrap your mind around that one. <clears throat> Everything is before him all the same. He's outside of time. He's not today. Yesterday wasn't yesterday for him. Tomorrow's not tomorrow for him. We're in time. He's not. He's outside of it. With that perspective, he has a perfect understanding of what is best for our lives. Therefore, we should trust him with all areas of our lives. 
Any uh, personal application thoughts about that one? Be negative. That's good. Uh, five, immutability. The Bible teaches that God does not change. Man, this one is so encouraging. Because, I mean, even seasons change, the time changes, our bodies change, our emotions change. Um, man, but God does not change, the Bible teaches. He's the bedrock upon which everything stands and is the solid hope for his people. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We have spoken of God's um, other attributes. Now consider this. All these other attributes that we're talking about, they all work together because God is one and God is simple. He's not made up of different attributes like a puzzle. He's all these things perfectly. All at the same time. Now, when it comes to love and mercy and goodness and righteous and just, all these things, they never change. They never change. God doesn't change. He never changes in his nature or his purpose. So now when God promises you something, how do you feel? He's not going to change. Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, the unchangeableness of his purpose, it is impossible for God to lie. The Bible contains numerous promises for those who belong to him. He can be trusted to keep his word. Um, let's, I'm just going to go a little bit faster. Omniscience. Does anyone know what omniscience means? All-knowing. God's omniscience is his perfect knowing of himself, all actual things outside of himself, and all things that do not become reality in one eternal and simple act. One should not note that this definition does not say, one should note that this definition does not say that God knows things that are possible, because in God's eternal mind and plan, there are only actual things, not possible things. You know why? Because there's nothing possible outside of what God says will happen. And so he knows reality. Uh, he knows everything perfectly. Uh, Job 34, 21, for his eyes are upon the ways of man and he sees all his steps. God sees all, his, all your steps. How many steps did you take? Don't look at your, what's it called, pedometer? Um, if you didn't have a pedometer, you wouldn't know how many steps you took that day. But God knows every single step you took. And he knows every thought you had while you took those steps. And in his justice, he will judge. 
So uh, I'm, wait, hold on one second. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. Uh, number seven, omnipresence. What does this mean? Everywhere, all the time. God is present everywhere in the universe. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So when we are off in a dark little corner doing our little sin, our little secret sin, who's there? God's there. He knows all your steps, but he's also present there. Now in God's uh, omnipresence, God is a spirit we talked about. He doesn't have a body. So God isn't in any place. He's everywhere. Um, so like some people say like, oh, is he in this cup? Well, yes, but he's not only in the cup. And another, another thing to think about, so when we sing like in Sunday school, my God is so big, big is like a size thing. What size is God? He's not a size. He's everywhere. So you can't sing, my God is so big. <laughs> but that's not what, the, that's not what the, the kid's song is trying to communicate. So uh, God is everywhere. He's present everywhere in the universe. There's nowhere you can go where he's not. He's watching everywhere. Uh, it says, since God is everywhere, it is foolish to think that we can hide from him. We do that. We think that. <clears throat> this also means that a believer may experience the presence of God at all times and know the blessings of walking with him. Last week, we talked about memorizing scripture and a man who's um, taken as a prisoner of war, and so he can recall scripture, and that's a good thing about knowing, memorizing scripture. But what's also true of the person who's been kidnapped? God is with him. God is everywhere. So when you're feeling alone, think of theology. Think of God's attributes. Are you ever alone? No. No matter how alone you feel. Number eight, omnipotence. <clears throat> God's omnipotence describes his ability to do anything consistent with his nature. Some people ask, well, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? That's just not a good, that's just like silly. <laughs> God can do anything consistent with his nature. He has the power to do it. He is all-powerful, more than enough strength to do anything. Um, so, as an encouragement, along with his sovereignty, um, not only is he in charge of everything, he has the power to do anything. And that's the God you're praying to. When you're asking him to help you out, he has the power to help you out. Now, he might not answer that prayer, and he might not help you in the way you think you need help, but he's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He has all power, all power. He is sovereign. Maybe you need to go through this trial to make you come to him and trust him more, to have faith in him more, and not yourself. Not to to uh, take your faith out of yourself and your exercise that you do or the medicine you take. Maybe he's going to let you get sick so that you trust him more. But... It's encouraging because God does have the power to answer all your prayers. Um, God's omnipotence is seen in his power to create, Genesis 1.1. He created the whole world. How hard was it for God to make the whole, everything? 
He just spoke it. Not hard at all. Uh, he preserves all things. He, he keeps everything going. Um, his providential care for us. Uh, God always provides for us. Look at the birds of the air. They don't, they don't toil or reap. He takes care of the birds. How much more worthy or how much more would he care about you? His children. All the money in the world, all the different places it goes, God provides for you. He's in charge of all of it. He's powerful enough to get it to you. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be anxiously, uh, do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why are we anxious about tomorrow? If, if it's true that God is eternal and outside of time, who's, over, who's in tomorrow waiting for you with all power and care for you? He's already there. He has your back if you're one of his children, if you've put your trust in Christ. Number nine, love. God is love. His love is unconditional. It's not based on the loveliness or merit of the object. God's perfect love is his determination to give of himself to himself and to others and is his affection for himself and his people. This definition affirms that God has affections or emotions. Um, but once again, it is necessary to note that God's affections are not passions by which he is driven. He's not driven by his emotions, is what it's trying to say. But active principles by which God expresses his holy disposition. God is not unfeeling or incapable of compassion. However, it is a sub-biblical understanding of God's affections that conceives of God as being surprised by emotional fluctuations. So God doesn't love you one day and not the next. If you're in Christ, he loves you. I mean, there's, we can go off onto how does God love unbelievers and like he lets them breathe his air even though they sin. How is God patient, uh, his loving patience? But if you're in Christ, God loves you and it's unconditional. If you disobey him today, but you're in Christ, he still loves you. And you can take comfort in that. It's not based on your good works. You're not saved by your good works, are we? And you don't stay saved by your good works. He loves you based on the work of Jesus Christ. If you've put your faith in him, now that doesn't mean like what, what Paul says in Romans. So because he, he, there's grace, does that mean that we can just do whatever we want? No, by no means. But his love for you isn't based on what you do. It's based on your faith in him. It's based on the work of Christ. <clears throat> and he will ne he's unchanging. He will never not love you. Uh, even when you die, even if you get Alzheimer's or something and you forget him, he won't forget you. Um, let's see. Truth, God is truth. Uh, John writes, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In that context, John connects light with truth. God cannot lie. He is not a lie. He's the only true God. He's the definition of truth. Everything that he says is true. Everything he does is true. <clears throat> so when he promises you something, that's true, and he will do it. 
You see how all these things just like work together? Um, Augustine said, where I found truth, there found I my God, who is the truth himself. Psalm 31.5, O Lord God of truth. Psalm 117.2, the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Um, God is truthful even if all men are found to be liars. His words and his judgments always prevail. Um, whew, mercy. God's mercy describes him as perfectly having deep compassion for creatures, people, such that he demonstrates benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable condition. God's great mercy is the practical expression of his compassion to those who have opposed his will. God's great mercy is contrasted with man's sin in Ephesians 2. <clears throat> so, we talked about God, the, our big problem, God's righteousness and justice, his holiness. That's bad news for us bad people. And so, to go to heaven, to be with God, we would need to be holy, righteous. How do we do that on our own? We can't. So what did God do? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God sent Jesus. The son came down, wrapped himself in human flesh, and lived righteously. He lived perfectly. He fulfilled the whole law. He did all the little things. When I preached and I was talking about uh, Mary and Joseph bringing baby Jesus to the temple to be circumcised, that was to fulfill the law. He fulfilled everything even as a baby. Everything in his life he fulfilled perfectly. And then he went to the cross to pay for us in our place. Penal substitution. <clears throat> he was fully man so that he could stand in our place. Fully God so he could take that punishment. And so now if we, and then three days later, he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, proving that the check cleared, you can say. Um, so now if we repent and put our faith in him, we can be saved. This is how all his attributes come together. His righteousness, Jesus was righteous. His justice, he couldn't just sweep it under the rug, our sin. So Jesus came and paid the penalty for us. He, God was perfectly just in doing it um, through Jesus and loving and mercy. Um, and now he loves us because he sees Christ in our place. <clears throat> and this is kind of just a rambling explanation. But now he stood in your place. Um, you get his death. You get his righteousness. So now when God looks at you, he sees perfect righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. Isn't that amazing? You see all these attributes in the cross, in the death of his son, he doesn't go against his attributes. He does all things perfectly. And so, this should be great encouragement to us. When we pray to God, he listens to our prayers. He, uh, he's everywhere. He listens to them everywhere. He has all power to do all of them. He is sovereign. He's in charge. He can do those things. Um, man, and he doesn't change. How awesome is God? This is... We've only been talking about God for like 45 minutes, 50 minutes. But man, don't you want to worship him now? This God that we talked about who doesn't need anything, 
Before creation, he's self-existent, self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. Created. Didn't need to make creation. Creation rebelled. Did he need to make a plan to save them? No. Didn't need to send Jesus. He could have just judged us right then and there, and he would have been perfectly righteous and just. But look what he's done for us through Jesus, through his son. It's amazing. So next week, we're going to start talking about Jesus. Um, I would really like in the future sometime to do, a, to do an equipping hour on God's attributes so we can dive deeper into these things. Um, so we'll see. Um, but yeah, let's pray and then get ready to worship this amazing God. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this um, this hour that went by so quick to just reflect on how you revealed yourself to us in your word. Lord, you are so awesome and holy and loving and merciful and omnipotent and sovereign. Lord, all of your attributes are amazing. They're amazing to meditate on. And Lord, all we can do is just be in awe and wonder and worship you and be thankful. Lord, we pray for this upcoming service. We pray that we would sing so loud just to praise you. Lord, you are amazing. Thank you for what you've done for us. Help us to have a good rest of this Lord's day. Um, bless our time of fellowship and um, knowing everyone's names through his name tag. We love you in Jesus' name.